Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. I'm here to introduce the Long Short and also to report something that bears relation to this seminar series. I'm working on a book. The book is called Maintenance. I think of it as kind of a Long Now project. Uh, Long-term thinking is in the thick of maintenance. It has to do with managing continuity. And it's kind of an ambitious book. The subtitle is Of Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Which means that I'm researching a whole bunch of areas that I up till now knew little about other than interest. And it's pretty intense. So, and I'm having such a good time. One byproduct of that is I'm backing out of some of the other activities that I would otherwise be engaging in. Immersion in the book for probably already a year, probably two more years, maybe more. And so I am stepping back a ways on curating this series, and it is being done uh, increasingly by Alexander Rose and Kevin Kelly. And indeed, you'll see the first example of the new regime tonight, since it's purely curated by Alexander Rose. He'll be doing the Q&A and so on. Good evening. As I read Bina's book about, uh, really, that's just kind of this fundamental book about long-term thinking, it, it, every chapter felt like a book that, that really we should have written ourselves. Um, and it has so many great references to speakers um, that have been on this stage, some of our own board members, like Danny uh, Stewart, Peter Schwartz. Um, and so it's also, I think, in being in January, having, uh, having a book that, that you can really kind of hang your, your coat on and say, well, what do you mean by long-term thinking? How do I do it in my own life? And I think that's the thing that she's captured better than, than we have uh, yet, really, with any project at Long Now. So I'm very excited to have her here tonight. Um, she spent um, at least five years, almost seven years, working on this project, and uh, I'm super excited to have her here tonight to share with you. I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the Internet. They help people start Internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world. Hello, everyone, and thank you, Xander. Uh, so that clock, the clock of the long now, when I first heard about it, it was a source of inspiration for me as someone who's interested in long-term thinking and ended up writing a book about it. And I remember hearing about the Long Now Foundation and meeting a member and just wondering, sort of like, what is this strange monastic group that is building a <laughs> clock to run for 10,000 years? And this member told me, 
it's kind of like a support group for people who are concerned about the future. So, <clears throat> I guess that resonates. So maybe the way I should introduce myself is by saying, hello, I'm Bina, and I've been a heavy long-term thinker for as long as I can remember. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Anyone else, anyone else? Um, so, so I, uh, I want to start at the end of a civilization. So these are people preserved in the ash of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. And when the volcano erupted in Pompeii and destroyed the city of Pompeii, the civilization that was there in Herculaneum, the people were caught unaware. They didn't really know that this was about to happen. This is according to the accounts of Pliny the Younger, who was the poet who chronicled the eruption. Years later, he wrote letters describing that the earth was trembling in the days before the uh, eruption, but that people didn't really know what that was and that that meant that they should flee the path of this volcano. And in fact, 17 years before this volcanic eruption, a lot of people don't realize this history, but there had been a severe earthquake in Campania, in that region of modern-day Italy, and it had leveled buildings, it had killed flocks of sheep, it had cracked statues of the gods. And the explanations at the time, a lot of people thought of this as sort of an angry act of the gods when this happened. But even the most sort of erudite thinkers of the age, Seneca, who was probably the most respected uh, person, thinker of that time in Rome, he was the tutor to Nero and also an advisor to Nero, the emperor. He wrote in Natural Questions that earthquakes were and assuredly caused by subterranean winds that were trying to escape from the earth. And he also reassured people. He said, look, this region is just as safe as any other region. There's no reason to evacuate just because this earthquake happened. Go about your lives. Live, live normally. And so I'm struck because I'm here near two very active seismic uh, faults that we know so much more than the ancients did. So we know about plate tectonics, we have seismic instruments that show us activity in certain areas, measure the size of earthquakes. We know, of course, that the region around Mount Vesuvius is an active seismic zone, also that there's an active volcano, all of this knowledge. And we also have other kinds of predictive knowledge. We are able to look into the future in a way that the ancients couldn't have imagined, whether that's our weather forecasts, hurricane forecasts, which have gotten vastly more accurate over the last 50 years, the fact that we know the half-life of radioactive waste, the fact that we can model and predict the climate of the future, the next 50 years, the next 100 years, that we can see how we're warming the planet. And so with all of that knowledge, the question is, will we use it to actually think ahead better? And I don't think having forecasts, having all these better forecasts, are the same as having good foresight, which is to say the judgment to use those forecasts to make better decisions about the future. And so the question that's been driving me and that drove me to write this book, The Optimist Telescope, is can we do better than the ancients? Can we actually use all of the vast knowledge we have to act better and, and to think ahead more wisely? And I, I say that and not just sort of can we as any generation, but because I think our generation has a greater responsibility to think ahead than any previous generations, that we're living in a reckless age. The people in Pompeii were kind of innocents. They were not that different from the dinosaurs that were struck by the meteorite. They didn't know, right, that this was about to happen. But 
that will be hard for people to say about us with all the knowledge we have. So how can we actually do better in a time where we're driven a lot by instant gratification, our culture is reinforcing the immediate, whether it's how you look at our news cycles or our consumer products, or even just how we measure progress in businesses, whether we look at quarterly profits or how we look at um, you know, whether, how much we've accomplished uh, in a year. So all of that is the context that sort of set me out. Uh, I've traveled around the world over the course of the five years I was researching and writing this book, looking for examples of where people do think ahead, where people have failed to think ahead, and to try to understand why. I looked at fields of research spanning anthropology, economics, evolutionary biology, and interviewed experts of all kinds, including some who are here in this room, like Stuart, uh, and Danny Hillis, uh, who of course is, uh, along with Alexander, uh, the engineer behind um, the clock that's going to run for 10,000 years, that we hope is going to run for 10,000 years. And that all kind of led me to this conclusion that I, I don't know if we're going to be able to think ahead, uh, but I think we can. And I have some optimism about our ability to think ahead and to do better than the ancients. And I want to share with you, I guess, sort of four reasons uh, across this talk uh, why I have that optimism about our ability to think ahead. The first is that we are more than our biological impulses. So I think it's a common misconception, conception, that we are just like the hunter-gatherers on the plains and that we are programmed to think just short-term we're programmed to respond to our immediate impulses and not do a whole lot more. Now, all of you are in this room and you're kind of a testament to the fact that that is not the only thing we're capable of as human beings because you all, at least to some degree, care about long-term thinking and are probably doing it to some degree in your lives. And of course, if we look across human history, we are also the species that started farming in the Fertile Crescent, right? We're also the species that built civilizations that have put human beings on the moon and maybe someday on Mars. So we know we have the capacity to some degree for this long-term thinking, but there's also this sort of sense that we are just programmed and we're not much more than, the, than our biology when it comes to our immediate needs and our, and our seeking of instant gratification. What I found in my research for this book is that culture and environment matter a whole lot when it comes to thinking ahead and can support us to think ahead in many ways. So many of you will be familiar with the classic marshmallow test, uh, the test given to toddlers. Uh, Walter Michel uh, started in the 60s. I know he was a speaker, uh, a long-term thinking speaker, a salt speaker. Uh, and um, of course, he's, he's since passed away. Uh, one of the notions that came out of the sort of popularization of this test is that there are certain kids who are really good at waiting for that second marshmallow. They resist the urge to take the first one, and they they end up doing better in life, right? We know that they passed their SAT scores at, with higher, sorry, got higher SAT scores, uh, graduated from college at higher rates, uh, basically succeeded at the game of life. And that then there are some people who indulge in that first treat, first marshmallow, pretzel, cookie, and that they are just kind of cursed to not being very good at thinking ahead. Uh, so that's kind of the myth, I think, that emerged from Michel's original experiments, uh, which were done, I said, in the 60s, but of course, he followed those students, those kids, as they grew up, and to see how they did in life. 
Well, the body of research around the marshmallow test that has come after those initial experiments really tells a different story, and it tells a story of how peer groups and culture and norms change whether people wait for the second marshmallow. And one of the examples of this is a study that was done that showed that kids who are in groups where they're wearing all wearing red T-shirts, and they're told kids with the red T-shirt wait for the second marshmallow, wait for the second cookie. Well, then those kids will at much higher rates wait for that across different kinds of differences, across different kinds of、um, factors. Another really interesting、uh, insight from these studies is that culture can overcome even scarcity or poverty, lack of resources, which we usually associate with. Being more wired for instant gratification, I love this study of Cameroonian toddlers that compared Cameroonian toddlers with German toddlers, hundreds of them, and found that the subsistence farmers' kids in Cameroon were passing the marshmallow test with a local treat known as a puff puff, like a kind of donut treat. They were passing it at sort of rates of 70 percent. They were waiting for that second treat, whereas German and American toddlers routinely, when they take the marshmallow test, pass only about 30 percent. Pass, wait for the second treat. So some of our conceptions about who can wait, who can think ahead, I think, are wrong. And also, some of what we learn is that environment and culture really matter and change even what individual people are capable of doing. That we're not just cursed by whatever our nature is and whatever we were born with. One of the contexts in which I've seen this play out in, in sort of the real world, ironically, is Las Vegas,、uh, where, where I went and、uh, followed some professional poker players around and、uh, spent some time trying to understand the subculture of professional poker, which I think is interesting because it exists in this environment of a casino, sort of sometimes on these floors above the main. Floor of a casino where the roulette and the blackjack is being played below, and where the subculture really encourages thinking ahead. I would say, in a sense,、uh, in the sense that professional poker is played over the course of many hands, many games over a tournament, and the players have to learn how not to act on their impulses and act rashly based on particular hands or particular people or players that they have vendettas against. And there's a whole set of norms and language that reinforces that form of thinking ahead. Terms like grinding, which is sort of like being an apprentice in a Renaissance sculptor's studio. This idea that you grind away for years before you become a successful professional poker player. I also, in some more serious contexts, found、uh, how culture and norms、um, could have a big effect on thinking ahead. And one of those is in the prescription of antibiotics, which we all know is happening at such a high rate. In very, in many ways, wrongly. So more than half of prescriptions given for coughs and colds in the United States and the UK are given incorrectly, and at much higher rates in the developing world, we suspect. And we know that that's giving rise to superbugs, drug-resistant bacteria that are spreading around the world. By 2050, we expect 10 million people a year to die from these superbugs, and it's a preventable problem, right? Because there's a moment in which doctors prescribe these medications where they could choose not to, right? And they're doing what's good for the individual in the immediate sense, or what they believe is good for the individual in the immediate sense,、uh, and neglecting what's good for the long-term collective. Seems like one of those conundrums that's impossible to solve. But in fact, there are a number of hospitals and doctors' offices that have addressed this problem really successfully, and it's through culture and setting new norms. One example of this is、uh, primary practices, primary care practices that、uh, put up posters in the exam rooms, where the, exa- the, the poster would say, basically, we don't prescribe antibiotics in this practice unless they're really needed. 
It sets up a new expectation on the part of the doctor and also on the part of the patient who might be begging for that antibiotic for their kid who's been sick for a few days and doesn't want to wait to see that bacterial culture come back, doesn't want to wait to see if the cold will go away because it's a virus, uh, but it's changing the norms. Another experiment that had a great deal of success in the UK was sending letters to doctors telling them how they perform relative to their peers. So high-profile British leaders sent out thousands of letters to doctors who were the worst performing at, pre at prescribing these antibiotics. And they found that they um, reduced in a six-month period 80,000 inappropriate prescriptions of antibiotics, saving a ton of money for the national health care system as well. So the second reason I have some optimism about our ability to think ahead is that the commons is not always a tragedy. So this idea that when there's a shared resource, like the ocean, uh, like a forest, and nobody owns it, there's a sense that that resource is going to be destroyed over time. It's a concept that comes from neoclassical economics. And the idea is no person has the incentive or motivation to protect that resource everyone will take what they can from it because they're in a race with everyone else to sort of use as much as they can of that resource before it's destroyed. And there's no sort of collective sense or ability to preserve that resource for the future. And a very classic example, in fact, um, the sort of seminal essay about this idea of the tragedy of the commons uh, was written by Garrett Hardin in the late 60s, though Aristotle thought of it long before. Um, so it was not a unique idea to Garrett Hardin, but he gets a lot of credit, and he used fisheries as his example of what happens to the commons. People overfish, right? Fish are in the ocean, everyone wants to get some, fishermen come and they take it, eventually the, fish, the, the fishery collapses, everyone's left wondering, wondering what happened. Well, I found examples of where this specific tragedy of the commons has been overcome. One of them in Galveston, Texas, where the red snapper commercial fishery has been brought back from the brink of extermination. It was in 2004, 2005, vastly overfished, uh, destructively overfished. Uh, and one of the fishermen there who I spoke to said he used to fish like a pirate uh, and uh, go out under the cloak of night um, in sort of dangerous conditions to get as much fish as he could during what were known as annual derby days. This is a way that a lot of fisheries have been typically managed in the United States um, over since sort of the 40s. And what happened was the group of fishing businesses, fishermen in Galveston, running the Red Snapper fishery, got together and they decided to form a collective agreement, a collective way of managing this fishery to bring it back, uh, known as a cat share, where the fishermen and each fishing business becomes uh, like a long-term investor, essentially with one specified share of the fishery as a whole. And so as the fishery grows, your share of that grows over time. And that sort of simple but also complex way of organizing the fishery has been really successful in bringing it back. And there are about 22 cat share uh, managed fisheries in North America that have been studied to have similar results, not all so dramatic as this one. Another example of the commons not being so tragic uh, is uh, a story that I found and, and sort of tell in the book about Richland County, South Carolina. So this is Mullen Taylor, who used to be a county official and is still a lawyer uh, down there in Richland, and Richland County. And Richland County is, by the way, where Columbia, the capital of South Carolina, is. And about... Uh, roughly 15 years ago or so, there was a proposal to um, 
to develop a very dangerous floodplain in this county. It was an area where they wanted to put a billion dollar real estate development with golf courses, with an uh, elderly home, with uh, all kinds of businesses and residences. And even though there were floodplain maps showing this was sort of the regulatory floodway, which is where waters rush really, really quickly during a storm event, uh, there were heavy lobbying interests on the part of these developers. Uh, they had a lot of political influence, and they were trying to push through this development. And this is an example of where political leadership and the law can actually do a lot to help manage the commons for the greater good for the future. Uh, the zoning laws on the books in Richland County, as well as the legal precedent set by this battle to protect Grand Central Terminal that played out in the 60s and 70s, uh, that was used to basically protect this area of land from development, uh, which later has flooded and sort of proven the point that it would have been a reckless place to develop in the first place. And I wanted to tell the story because <clears throat> so often we hear and we see the other side of the story, which is to say we see a wild land or, or a region that's been developed um, in a wildfire zone that then goes up in flames. Obviously, California has seen um, the devastating results of that. We see the floodplain that has been overdeveloped and then floods and people's homes are, are destroyed um, and often people are people's lives. And we don't often see the opposite side of that, right? We, it's, it's very hard to tell the counterfactual story. And I wanted to sort of excavate that and try to understand how, how the leaders had managed to make that happen and how the law sort of functioned to help protect the commons over the long term. Uh, and so those lessons can be applied by other communities. All right, a third reason for optimism about our ability to think ahead is that we have history and we have imagination. And these are two factors that I think really can expand our ability to think about the future uh, in ways uh, that we haven't before and that can allow us to meet our obligations uh, to think more about, in fact, future generations. So it's very specific. It's, it's, it's not just using history, randomly using history, I found in, in the examples and in, in the research I did for the book. And I'll give you first an example of where I think history can actually be very limiting in how we think about the future. So this is uh, the Olympic Village that was built for the 1972 Olympics in Munich. And um, for those who don't know, this was uh, an example of a group of people who really thought they were thinking ahead, who believed they were doing what was right in terms of planning for future disaster. So the organizers of the Munich Olympics in 1972 hired a police psychologist. This is a job I didn't know existed until I researched this book. Um, this was a guy named Georg Sieber, who um, had uh, been sort of a double agent. He would infiltrate student groups, student protest groups in, in Munich, and he would also work for the police. And so then he would inform the other that the police was going to be at the protest and the, that the, uh, the protesters, that the police were going to be there. Um, sorry, the other way around, they were, that the protest was happening. And, um, and he thought that what he was doing was avoiding conflagrations between these two groups by letting everyone know that they were going to be there, so then they just expected it. Um, so anyway, they hired this guy, Georg Zieber, to paint scenarios of what could go wrong at the Munich Olympics. And he came up with 26 scenarios, including some very mundane scenarios, like someone gets pushed into a swimming pool. Uh, but one of the scenarios he came up with, which was known as Situation 21, was uh, the scenario that actually happened, which was uh, that 
terrorist group, Palestinian terrorist group, uh, climbed the fence of the Olympic Village just before dawn one day, uh, took hostage Israeli athletes, and of course what ultimately happened is there was a massacre of athletes and also of the terrorists. Um, now, so you would think that the Olympic organizers being given these scenarios might have done something to plan for them, but in fact what happened was they heard the scenarios and they said, that sounds very nice, but we actually don't want any of those things to happen and we're not really interested in planning for them. So they sort of sanitized the scenario that they'd been presented with. And there were reasons for that, one of which was that this was the first time the Olympics had been held in Germany since 1936 when Hitler had presided over them. So there was a sense that they wanted to rebrand the Olympic Games in Germany. So they, were, they had this idea that uh, this should be the cheerful games. They actually called them Die Heitrenspiele, which I think is the carefree or cheerful games. And they had a mascot, a doxy, and um, they really didn't want to have it seem militaristic. So they didn't want to put armed guards on the perimeter of the Olympic Village, which was what Zieber had suggested that they do. And so they were kind of trapped by history, I think, in, some, in, in my estimation. Uh, it, their recent history, their recent memory prevented them from actually planning for a realistic future scenario in even the most basic ways, just taking basic precautions. Um, and I want to contrast that with a use of history that I think actually can be helpful in, in thinking ahead, which um, is from Japan. Uh, this is Yanosuke Hirai, who's the, the arrows over. And um, I was in Fukushima on the sixth anniversary of the nuclear disaster there. And I learned about Hirai when I was there because he was the engineer who was behind the Onagawa nuclear power station, which was closer to the epicenter of the earthquake, the Tohoku earthquake of 2011 that destroyed the Fukushima nuclear power plant, led to the meltdown. And Onagawa, even though it was closer to the epicenter, had been safe. It was a place of refuge for people in the city during the disaster. And I wanted to understand, so why was Onagawa safe when Fukushima, you know, was not. And, and it was really this engineer's name who came up uh, several times because he had insisted that that nuclear power station be built further back from the sea with a higher elevation and with a higher seawall. And the reason that he insisted on that, uh, he didn't live to see this earthquake, by the way, but the reason he insisted on it was because he had this memory, he had this knowledge, I should say, of his hometown shrine, which had had a plaque uh, honoring the sort of memory of a tsunami from the year 869, the Shogun earthquake. And uh, he carried that knowledge that a tsunami could have that kind of destructive effect, and it led to how he thought about this and planned for this uh, piece of infrastructure, this nuclear power plant, in a way that was uh, had more greater foresight than, um, than the TEPCO, the, the nuclear power um, company that ran Fukushima. And so I think part of the lesson here is that we need longer historical memory. Uh, so often we're only thinking back, and that's not just thinking, it's also the models we use to predict future risk. So TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, which was behind the Fukushima owned Fukushima uh, Daiichi, that nuclear power station, they uh, were using computer models to model risks like a tsunami, like an earthquake, to their power station, but they were, their data only went back something like a couple of decades. And the one in a thousand year event of an earthquake like the one that happened in 2011 could have been put into their models, but they didn't look far enough back. 
the other uh, thing I'll say is that we also need to use multiple historical analogies often to plan for the future and think about the future. And this proved to be one of the, the key factors in the Cuban Missile Crisis that allowed um, Kennedy and sort of the American side to manage all the scenarios that they were thinking about with Khrushchev when Khrushchev um, had the missiles in Cuba um, that could have led to, you know, mutually assured uh, destruction. Uh, and, and that also, I think that idea of multiple histories um, is also limited, <laughs> even though it's important. Uh, that often what we're experiencing is unprecedented change, and particularly with climate change, um, we see scenarios that have never played out in recent experience or historical experience of humans sort of in the written record. And so we need ways to extend our imagination well beyond uh, even what, uh, what's in our history books. And for that, uh, there are a number of tools that can be used, including art, including role-play games, uh, including uh, virtual reality that allow us to inhabit scenarios, fiction, allow us to, to be able to create and, and, and believe um, in possibilities, both negative and positive in the future, uh, that we have yet to imagine. And so that's one of the reasons I believe that we're capable of a lot more long-term thinking than we do, because we have that capacity for imagination. We just don't always apply it to thinking about the future. All right. And the fourth reason, fourth and final reason I'll share uh, for my optimism about our ability to think ahead is that we are heirloom keepers. So I, uh, sort of at the beginning of my process of writing the book and part of the inspiration for writing the book uh, was getting an heirloom from my great-grandfather. I um, got it through my grandmother. I never met my great-grandfather, but he was a music and art critic in South India. Um, in the early 20th century, and he was the only person I'd known in my family who was a writer. So I really kind of connected with that. There were a bunch of engineers, a bunch of doctors, a bunch of business people, but there were no sort of creative writers that I'd known in, my, in sort of in my family. And uh, this instrument, which is called a dilruba and has more than 20 strings, um, had been given to him as a gift. He was often uh, given gifts by uh, musicians and artists who he wrote about, uh, which now I think would be bad journalistic practice, but um, the standards of the time. So, um, so I, when I got this instrument, uh, it was really moving to me in many ways, uh, in part because it was this connection to this member of my family who I actually felt some sort of was some sort of kindred spirit, and also because it really made me feel like I had some sort of new role. I really felt like the power of being a descendant. And then immediately it raised for me the question of what kind of ancestor I was going to be, who I was going to pass this instrument onto, who I was going to share it with. And I know many of you in your families, you probably have objects, uh, pieces of jewelry or furniture or things that have been passed down to you that perhaps you think about passing down to others. And that practice, that idea of having something precious that you shepherd through time is in fact a very human experience. It's something that we all um, can relate to, I think, even if we haven't had a direct, immediate experience of it. And I don't believe that that's just something that happens in our families, that it just has to stay as a sort of individual family experience. I think it's also something that we can do collectively, that we can do in a way that fosters heirlooms that belong to our communities and, in fact, to humanity. And one of the examples of this that we have, of course, in this country are our national parks. This is Yosemite, of course, since we're, um, it's close to here, close to home. And um, 
the national park system is in fact, I think, a way of institutionally creating and shepherding shared heirlooms. We protect these landscapes, we have laws, we have resources, financial resources that sustain them over time. But also importantly, they're not just sort of time capsules buried for some future generation, each generation uses them. Each generation gets to experience them and even adapt them if they want. And that's what I think makes an heirloom very different than something that just gets buried and unearthed by some future society. It's something that belongs to each generation in part and that gets shepherded. And I found other examples of such shared heirlooms as well, including a fishery in Mexico that I wrote about in the book, uh, where lobster fishermen across eight different communities have banded together to treat the fishery like a shared heirloom that they're managing collectively for their descendants. And I found that incredibly inspiring. Now, also, as I look at the youth climate movements, I feel that Greta Thunberg and the climate strikers, the Sunrise Movement, the young people who are out in the streets, who are on television telling us, my generation and generations older, to do something about the climate crisis are, in fact, in a way, sort of asking us to be better heirloom, asking us to be better ancestors and asking us to treat the planet like an heirloom, asking us to treat our atmosphere like a shared heirloom our oceans like a shared heirloom. And I found that, find that to be very powerful because it involves a conversation across generations between young and old. And it's very human and in, within our capacity to do. So do I think that we will do better than the people of Pompeii? Do I think that we will save our civilizations, save all of our resources for the future? I don't actually know the answer to that question. Uh, but I do know that we can do better, and that is the basis uh, for my optimism and why I believe that long-term thinking is not just some special, precious trait of a few, but something that we are deeply capable of, something we can hone with the right tools and knowledge. We just haven't been aware of all of the ways in which we can actually enhance our ability to think ahead. And since Xander pointed out it's the beginning of the year and it's also um, the beginning of the decade, mm, I want to close with a few practical tools because practical tools were promised for your lives. Um, so uh, things you can, can do at home um, that are safe to do at home, I think, I think are safe to do at home. Um, First is minding what you measure. And here I'll just lean on Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian. So he wrote about um, this wise person, who, the Athenian statesman Solon, who after he passed a bunch of reforms in Athens, he banned the practice of enslaving people when they had debts, good things. He got, he got plebeians the right to vote. And then he sort of left and went on this trip. And he went to Sardis in, in modern-day Turkey, and he met this king, King Croesus. And as Herodotus tells it, Croesus, the king, takes, him, takes Solon on this tour of um, his palace and all of his riches. And on the tour, after the tour, he asks Solon, because Solon's considered this wise man, he asks him, well, who's the happiest man alive? Who's the happiest man on earth? And it's like leading the witness. And, and Solon says, well, no, it's this guy, Tellus, actually, and he's dead. And, um, and Tellus is this Athenian general, and he's the happiest man because he died heroically in battle, and he's survived by all of these children and grandchildren. He's made such an impact. And Croesus was not happy with that answer. And 
Uh, and so Solon sort of shot, shoots back with, well, you know, your life is, an average lifespan is more than 26,000 days. And on this day, you have this wealth amassed here. But that doesn't tell me anything about what your life is going to be in sum. And in fact, then Croesus goes on to lose his son, lose his kingdom, lose his riches. And so I say this because we are in a culture where we measure ourselves by the immediate constantly, by the number of steps we take, by the quarter target we hit, by the number of emails we've answered this year or week or day or hour. And those are, those are measures that are often ephemeral. They're not meaningful for what we want to accomplish. So I really encourage uh, thinking about milestones, thinking about what you measure in your life as having a link to what you actually want to be remembered for or what you want to accomplish. And those measures, I think, are the more meaningful ones for us and also the ones that um, ultimately become more satisfying um, because you're not just like rolling the ball up the hill and then boulder up the hill and then having to start over again the next day with more to measure. The second piece of advice is to reinforce the norm of thinking ahead, which you're all doing by being here among fellow long-term thinkers, but uh, it's really the idea of being like professional poker players, which is just to say, surround yourself with other people who can provide that cultural reinforcement, that norm, that thinking ahead and valuing the future matters. Uh, because this is harder to do in isolation because of some of those aspects of our nature that are still there from our hunter-gatherer days. And the final piece of advice is to commit to a shared heirloom. So this can be something small in your community, a forest, a library, uh, a aquifer, something that is worth protecting for the future. So just like everything from your parents' basement is not a family heirloom, everything in our society cannot be a shared heirloom, but there are certain resources, right, that we've inherited that we know are going to be valued by humans in the future, even if we can't imagine exactly what those humans are going to be like. And some of what we need to pass along, some of those shared heirlooms are, in fact, knowledge. And um, I thank you all for listening to some of mine, and I look forward to hearing some of yours. Thank you. Um, and we did a slightly shorter talk tonight to allow for a little bit more discussion. And I also want to say um, Bina was nice enough to sign some of her books out in the lobby. If you want to grab a signed copy, they are there. Um, and I want to dive a little bit into, at first into this tragedy of the commons. I think, the, I think you were right to start the book with it, because I mean, fundamentally, the story around long now and long-term thinking is, is how humanity can be a good ancestor and take a step back and start thinking about these the things that uh, that are that a hunter gatherer may not be able to um, with limited resources and I think you touched on it with the Cameroonian toddlers too it's in so, on some level uh, long term thinking is a luxury um, and you have to have a certain level of comfort in your life to do it um, but it doesn't necessarily mean people of more resources have to do it. And so I just want to talk a little bit more about resource level and comfort level and, and where it fits in. Yeah, scarcity, um, scarcity definitely has an impact on our ability to think ahead. And, uh, you know, scarcity can be of resources, right? So if, you're, if you need a pair of shoes and you have $20 to buy a pair of shoes and you are racing between, you know, picking up your kids from daycare and your second job of the day, and you're just going to get a pair of shoes, you're not going to be thinking about whether those shoes are going to last for 
50 years or, or 10 years or even like, are they going to make it through the year? You're going to buy whatever pair of shoes uh, you're able to get. And, and that history can be extrapolated. You know, it's, um, it's very common for people of low income, particularly in the U.S., right, to play the lottery or um, to fall prey to pawnbrokers. And that's true in the developing world, too. So if you have less, it can often, ironically, it's harder to build the capacity to get yourself out of that cycle because it seems like what you should do is try to, to actually get yourself out of the hole, you need something much bigger. So instead of putting that away for savings, you might actually say, okay, I think it's just worth it to buy the scratch ticket. And that's actually been used, there are ways to collectively use that, so I think we need to kind of rely on our collective institutions, on our shared resources, on our communities to help us with that. Um, so there have actually been schemes designed, including in Michigan through this Credit Union League, to link uh, lottery, playing the lottery to savings so that uh, when people uh, go to save in these particular kind of savings accounts, which are called prize-link savings accounts, uh, they're also getting some of their interest gets put into a pool that's a lottery that's run on a monthly basis. And so they have the prospect of sort of winning big jackpots, even if most people don't, but they're not gambling away their money, they're actually saving in the process, and that's proven wildly successful. They, they tried this right after the financial crisis, and they thought this might not work because people don't have a lot of spare money, and they encourage a lot of low-income people to save that way. So I think this, there are ways that we can kind of come together and help people who are in scarcity uh, to do better at long-term thinking, but it's also not, I think the Cameroonian toddlers uh, experiment is important because it's one of several examples that I've documented where it's, it's not always the case that what you have materially is going to determine how you make decisions, right? There's going to be, there are exceptions to every rule, and there are ways in which culture and environment can actually overpower that basic sort of necessity. Right, and I, I assume that Cameroonian teenagers had lived in so much scarcity that they were more willing to forego wait a little bit longer for... The toddlers. The toddlers, yes. Yeah, I mean, the researcher, Bettina Lamb, who's the German uh, researcher who led this experiment, she, she, she surmised, and of course it's like, these, it's very hard to say, like, what are the factors, how exactly was the culture doing this, but that they were kind of raised to be more disciplined in general, and so there was a sense of just less indulgence of, of the babies and the, and the toddlers that might have contributed to that. Right. Yeah. And um, one of the topics that you brought up uh, in the book that I, I was really intrigued by is this idea of, um, of prospective hindsight. And I mean, a lot of what you talk about is, in some way, is kind of a gamification of long-term thinking. And it, obviously, with the poker, that's that's very much the case. But there are these um, ideas of if-thens and looking back from the future scenarios that I think are really, really helpful. I don't know if you could talk about that. Yeah, that's a really, and that's good. That's more practical advice for people's lives. Um, and since we build this this way, I give people the tips. Uh, but so. Perspective hindsight is, so when you usually, or when I typically think about the future, I'll, I'll say, okay, I really want this meeting or this, and okay, right now we're, I'm the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe, and we're doing our endorsements of presidential candidates. So we've been interviewing the presidential candidates, and we're going to come out with it endorsement soon, and so I'm thinking, oh, I really want this to go well, like, I want people to read it, I want the endorsement to be really, really well, I want it to look like this on the page and this online, and I'm thinking, I'm fixating on all these things that I want to go well in the future, and I should probably use perspective hindsight. So perspective hindsight is, 
a technique that allows you to sort of get past thinking about all the factors that you can't control in the present and focusing you and distilling sort of what are the factors, what are the decisions you have that affect future scenarios. So what you would do is you imagine an outcome as if it's already happened. And so you could do this with like a dinner party, for example, or I could do it with the, the endorsement page on the, you know, in the globe and say, okay, imagine it's gone really, really well. Like you just had the best dinner party. And then walk back and ask yourself why it happened and how it happened. And make a list of those reasons. Uh, why was it so great? Well, the conversation was really good. Uh, people really hit it off. Like, there was a lot of interesting people there. The food was delicious. It's probably not factors like, you know, maybe the weather made, it, made a little bit of a difference, but it's probably not factors like that. Um, it probably doesn't matter whether you serve dessert right away or if you waited, right? So all these sort of things that we can fixate on about the future get kind of stripped away when you ask the how and the why. Um, and that's just a technique you can use. You can also imagine a scenario going very, very wrong and then walk yourself back from that. And this Deborah Mitchell, um, who was a Wharton professor, came up with this term, Perspective Hindsight, for this, and she actually thought it would have worked really well to avoid the Chernobyl disaster if, if this technique had been used. But in fact, in our lives, we can use something like this. And then you asked about if-then tactics as well. Yeah, well, I think I mean, that came up, I think, yeah. with the, the poker players. And I yeah. think it was, uh, it was a, especially in a, in a world where what seems like a world where there's so, they have so little control, right. um, using an if-then. And a lot of it is about impulse control. Yeah. And that was a very powerful and impulse control. Yeah, so Matt Matros, um, who's a professional poker player, has made more than $2 million make playing poker. He's won the World Series of Poker. Uh, told me about how he goes about um, planning for a poker tournament, a poker game. And so he sets out, he thinks about scenarios he might face in the moment that would cause him to make sort of rash decisions. Like he's next to a player who's got a lot of bravado, who he's played against in the past, and he's going to be tempted to just kind of whatever, just lay it all out there and do something that doesn't make sense. He's also going to think about card combinations, so he's very mathematical the way he plays, and he'll think about scenarios that he could face at the poker table and what he would do under each of them based on what the odds will be, so he actually does some forecasting like that. Um, and basically, that is a version of a technique that's been studied by Peter Golwitzer, who's an NYU professor, who's documented this in sort of many, many dozens of settings. Uh, called if-then tactics, and this works very well for New Year's resolutions, by the way. So if you <laughs> if you have a New Year's resolution and you're just telling yourself, you know, I'm going to go to the gym five days a week or three days a week, uh, we all know how that usually turns out. You something happens, right? You end up there. For me, it's like, okay, it's really cold since I live in Boston. It's really cold this morning. I want to go to the gym, but I just I just like don't. I just want another hour of sleep and let it warm up a little bit, and then I then I'll just go to work. And uh, so if you're doing an if-then tactic, what you would do is you would say, if I'm, okay, I'm going to make the resolution, gym three days a week. If it's really cold in the morning, then I will, and then I state some sort of positive thing I will do that will get me to actually do this thing. So if it's a really cold morning, I will turn up like the hip-hop really loud at 6 a.m., and that'll get me out of bed, and then I'll, then I'll go to the gym. Uh, so it's sort of anticipating all the hurdles that might get in the way of your long-term goal uh, and thinking of those short-term hurdles and then stating affirmatively what you'll do to avoid them. And 
This, by the way, was also, has also been shown to work in classrooms where teachers have implicit bias when disciplining school children. So there's this pattern in which uh, black and brown students are sent to the principal's office more often in classrooms across the country, and that has disproportionate impact on their outcomes in life because if you go to this, it's just sort of this out of school, you go to this principal's office, you're more likely to be suspended, you're more likely to be suspended, you're more likely to end up in the prison system. So there's this whole chain of events, and it starts with the teacher and the student in the classroom. And teachers that I interviewed who'd used these techniques had found a way to actually change some of the outcomes um, in their schools and their classrooms. And what they would do is say, okay, I know that there's certain students that just irritate me, or I know if I haven't eaten enough, I'm going to end up disciplining my students too harshly. So if a student acts up in class, then I'm going to first drop my pencil and count to three before I decide what to do with the student. And it's basically a way of planning ahead for a situation that's prone to an impulsive reaction. And um, it has been shown to have some, at least some, uh, some preliminary positive results in preventing people from acting on their implicit bias. Right, so with a poker player, it was to not make an emotional play. If, they, yeah. if they're prepared for every card combination, and in the teacher's case, not make an emotional play when angry with the student. Right. Yeah. Right, yeah, an emo it's sort of an emotional play and one that's just based on that immediate impulse instead of maybe what a lot of these teachers, right, they don't want to actually be doing this. They just find themselves in the moment making those decisions, but if they really think about what's good for the long-term goals of their students or their classroom, it's not necessarily sending the kids to the principal's office. Right, yeah. When I'm a, about to send an email that I think is going to make someone angry, I just decide, I wait till the next day, and then yes. I reread it. I, yeah, that's I, I, that's, sure, that's I my pencil drop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I usually end up never sending it, giving him a call, so yeah. Um, yeah. That's also can, a good move. Can you say a little bit more about the motivations that kind of worked in this catch-share thing? I know that um, I think mm -hmm. we've had many talks here about the tragedy of um, where our fisheries are, and um, I was really, I'd never heard about these catch-share um, plans, and so I, I, um, I think that was, in a way, it was, it's kind of this global story um, that is playing out in a few fisheries, and hopefully more of them, so I want to make it more famous. Yeah, um, yeah, and but, at least but what 22 is it, what was the motivation, in North America now have, have catch-shares, oh, yeah. Uh, but what was the motive, how does that motivation work with catch-share for the fishermen themselves? So, uh, Sometimes it takes a crisis. In this particular fishery in Galveston that I talked about, the red snapper fishery, the fishery really was on the brink of collapse. So fishermen were finding that they were going out longer and longer days in more and more dangerous conditions. They were leaving weddings. So, so one of these fishermen, Buddy Gindin, I, that I interviewed, he, was, he would leave family events like reunions or weddings just so he could steal out in the night and be the first one kind of out on the reefs to get these fish, like what was left of the fish. And then they were all bringing them back on, these, on the same days because the, the fishery was organized by these derby days. And then there would just be a glut in the market and the, the prices were really low. Plus, a lot of chefs were not putting the fish, putting red snapper on their menus because they couldn't, there wasn't a dependable catch anymore. It was basically dwindling. And when it was there, it was just like all there. And then it, when it wasn't, it wasn't available. So I think they really saw the writing on the wall in terms of the fishery collapsing, and they were approached by an environmental organization, uh, EDF, that sort of was trying to pioneer different ways of managing fisheries, and they came together uh, with the regional, there's like sort of regional councils that govern fisheries in the U.S., and uh, basically decided that 
they should try this way of doing things. Now, there's the big debate about it is it sort of grandfathers in the fishing businesses that are already there, so it's not easy for new people to come in because the shares are all allocated based on who's been historically fishing and the, in the, the place. The reason that they are interested in the long, I mean, obviously they're interested in the long-term future of the fishery because they want to keep fishing. But yeah. the, the way the share system works, at least as I understood it, is that by owning a share, not fishing the fishery can be as valuable as yes. fishing the fishery. Yes, so re reducing the pressure on the fishery allows the stocks to replenish and, and bounce back over time. And that means your share can be bigger over time. You can also, you can also lease out your share, part of your catch uh, for someone else to catch that year if you want to fish less that year. It provides a way of planning sort of over time. And then also, which is really important in a lot of fishing communities, you know, I've spent time in maybe a dozen fishing communities around the world just over the years uh, between being a reporter and just having an interest in, in fisheries. And often it is a matter of sort of heritage or uh, it's a matter of culture as much as it is of business where people really do want to pass this on to their kids and grandkids. They really do want the fishery to be like an heirloom, even if they wouldn't use that term. And uh, they want to see some longevity of that as a cultural practice as part of the identity of a place. And there just haven't been ways to really do that, right? You are racing everyone else to fish. And if you don't, you're kind of left out. So I think the fact that there were these collective agreements allowed people to sort of have the pressure off. And they can also fish whenever they want until they meet their, their share quota. So they don't have to go out during family weather, weddings yeah. or in bad weather and that sort of gotcha. thing. Yeah. And the, I mean, so yeah, so fundamentally their shares just become more valuable the more valuable the fishery is. Yeah. And so they're, in, they're incentivized to not degrade the fishery as a whole. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And the more the fishery grows, the more their share grows as right. well. Yeah, it seems like it would be a really great practice for forestry yeah. as well, some of these other shared resources. And I mean, you worked uh, in the Obama administration uh, often trying to convince people that climate change uh, kind of the dangers of climate change and how to mitigate climate change. And I, how much did that play a role in the beginning of this book and kind of what you learned about human nature? Yeah, a big role. So, the, you know, a lot of writing projects are born out of frustration, and this, <laughs> this was no exception. Um, so when you're angry or, or frustrated with something in the world, it, it helps to be able to write. Uh, so I, yes, I worked in the Obama White House, and I, my role was working with communities and companies, sharing climate science, climate data, and the idea was the data and the science would be used by these groups to plan ahead for future wildfires, future droughts, uh, future floods, and uh, had varying success with that. So you sit down across from an executive who tells you, this all sounds really nice, like this all sounds really useful, um, I'm glad to have this information about my supply chain, but you know, my shareholders are all really thinking about the quarter, I'm evaluated based on my quarterly and annual performance, um, and I just, this is, this 10-year horizon is not really the horizon in which I make decisions. You know, they don't say it in those many words unless they're sort of talking to you privately, but that's the kind of impression you get. And um, I really wanted to understand, I mean, I think th there was, it was easy to sort of conveniently excuse that behavior as just being a byproduct of human nature, to say, well, we're just not capable of thinking ahead, and these executives are an example of that. They're just, they don't think ahead. And... I think that that's actually, um, I, I just, I think that's a neglect of our obligations. And I also think, based on the research I did for the book, 
you know, the book started as a book about short-term thing. I was going to call it Like There's No Tomorrow. Um, so, but, uh, but as I kept researching these examples and probing more deeply, I found that there was just so much more possibility that, there, that this was not some curse of human nature, that there were actually choices we were making and that we could make different choices. Are we going to? I don't know. But the fact that we can, uh, I think, is really meaningful, and I think it needs to be spread because, uh, you know, the executive who then hears about Paul Pullman, who actually was managing Beyond the Quarter, who was um, the CEO of Unilever until recently, and was not just his bonus was being um, tied to how much he was reducing the greenhouse gas emissions of the company on the whole, not just based on his profits on the quarter. Right. So the more models and examples there are, I think the more we can do. For sure. And I think that, yeah, the, and he, he made bonuses in the tens of millions of dollars based on reducing yeah, greenhouse gases, money. right? <laughs> a lot of money. So I don't think it's always that lucrative to do, do the right thing, but in that case, right. it was. Um, and just before we get to some of the questions that I know are, are coming down, um, and um, I'm going to give Stuart Brand the first question, um, but um, the... The, the story about the real estate developer that ended up not developing the thing, can you say a little bit more about how that actually, what were the mechanics of that working? How did they, how did they convince people and the, I mean, there was tons and tons of pressure from every angle, both the economics of the town that wanted to be revived as mm -hmm. well as the developers who obviously want to make money from the development itself. How did they actually win that argument? Yeah, it took a couple, there was a county councilwoman named Kit Smith uh, along with the lawyer whose image I showed, Mullen Taylor, who, these two women who were really uh, just standing very strong to try to get more information about the risks to the floodplain uh, while they were trying to push the development through. And ultimately, as they generated and collected more data and showed how dangerous this would be, uh, they started to get some interesting allies, including a group of hunters, um, sort of land landowners in the area who didn't want to see the development for other reasons because they didn't want their hunting grounds to be sort of contaminated by this um, by the golf course and the and the sort of development, the commercial development. Uh, but then they also uh, had to fight a really acrimonious legal battle. So the developer sued the county. And this happens in a lot of places. And this is sort of the fear of these lawsuits also is almost more powerful than the actual damage that's done by them. So a lot of communities will just think that they have to do what developers want. And if they don't let developers do what they want to the land that they own, in this case, the developer already owned the land, that they'll be sued and that that will just you know, drain or bankrupt the city coffers or the county coffers. And so a lot of municipalities kind of go forth greenlighting these developments that they know might be reckless. And so what the, what the legal battle, uh, the South Carolina Supreme Court ended up deciding uh, was that the county had the right to prevent this development and they relied on this, um, this ruling from the case that had, uh, the de that had New York City had won in the 1970s, this U.S. Supreme Court case. Uh, and it happened after Penn Station was sort of turned into the modern-day Penn Station, which is this hideous monstrosity. Um, and they wanted to do the same. A developer wanted to do something similar, build a high-rise above Grand Central Terminal, which is this beautiful Beaux-Arts piece of architecture in, in New York and mar marble edifice. And the idea that this, the character of this 
landmark of Grand Central Terminal would be permanently destroyed by the development was the basis by which the city rejected the development. And that went all the way to the US Supreme Court, and a ruling there was then used to argue that this community in South Carolina could protect this piece of land based on posterity, based on what was good for basically the future collective of the community. And so I think it was important to tell that story because it's both the political leadership of these two women and the fact how they handled, um, how they handled the development, which was in part sort of like the, the putting the brakes on, the impulsive decision. It was like dropping the pencil. They essentially put a pause on the whole process to get more information about the risk. And then what they also did was use this powerful legal precedent, and, and it just sort of speaks to the importance of our institutions, um, which, of course, we're in a sort of dark time for the state of our institutions in this country, but um, it's just a reminder of how much they matter. Right. Two strong women was the answer. Yes. That's also, <laughs> also was there another reason to tell the story. <laughs> um, so Stuart Brand um, asked, and I think you touched on it with the, the story of Japan a little bit, but I, I love these anecdotes and I think they're important, is um, these stories of when our an ancestors were good ancestors. Um, and posthumously, this, this Japanese um, kind of governor was able to um, avert a, a really bad situation. But did you come across any other situations where our ancestors were great ancestors and they kind of knew they were being great ancestors? That's a great question. I, there. You know, I don't know if they ever know for sure that they're being great ancestors, which I think is another thing for us to keep in mind. Um, and this principle of the heirloom, for me, resonated because I think as we look further, even though our predictive power is getting better, it's not perfect. And as you look across generations, with the exception of some issues like climate change, where our, our look into the future, we're actually more accurate in the models, sometimes looking further out than we are like next week or two weeks two years from now, um, that there, because we don't know what's going to happen generation after generation, we don't know, you know, how much gene editing is going to be used to alter species. We don't know what society is going to look like five generations from now in some respects. That heirloom is sort of more um, a source, a way of dealing with future generations that acknowledges um, or that has humility embedded into it because all we're saying is we're going to shepherd something to the next generation. We're going to protect something that's valuable to us for the next generation. We're going to create something that's valuable for the next generation and rely on them and give them the responsibility to shepherd it onward. And I would say that one example of that that um, I think is interesting from the book are these tsunami markers from, from Japan also. Um, which is not to say that only Japanese people can do this, um, but uh, that there were these markers in two particular communities that proved successful warnings for the 2011 tsunami. And there were a bunch of other markers, by the way, across Japan that did not have this success. But one of them was in Murahama, where there was this hill, which was the high point where people had fled during the 869 Shogun earthquake and tsunami that I mentioned. And people went to this high point thinking, if there's a tsunami coming, they're going to be safe. And what happened was two waves crashed on that hill. And so it was actually the least safe place to be. And uh, they had a marker that they put there saying, do not flee to this hill. <laughs> helpful, helpful ancestral message. And, um, and that, in fact, was heated in the 2011 
tsunamis, and two waves again crashed over the hill. And, I, and that, and the other was Aniyoshi, which was a warning that said, do not build below this point. Like very specific, in both cases, the messages were very specific. <laughs> it's like, nothing vague about this. And so the, some of the other markers were a lot vaguer. They were like just mem vague memorials. Like, we're very sorry about the people who died here in the tsunami, which is great, but not the same as like... Don't build below the slime. Don't build below yeah. the slime. And the Aniyoshi, the community did not do that. And that was also another place that was relatively better off during the 2011 tsunamis. Right. Yeah, I guess obviously it's, it's easier to know where not to run than where not to build for 1,200 years. It's a, yes. It's a, it's a, the pressures yeah, are much, right. gr much greater to build right. for the you same reason. You have to reasons. give them more props. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but that they did tell the yeah. story for 1,200 years and yes. save the lives is pretty Yeah, stunning. and I think that's the other component that makes it more like an heirloom is that it wasn't just the marker and then the marker was forgotten, that they were actually teaching school children in these communities. And so the knowledge was being passed down like an heirloom. It wasn't just a marker in the landscape. It was something that was more sort of stewarded, shepherded across generations. And um, Kevin Kelly asked, besides the, the marshmallow test, are there other lessons for long-term thinking for five-year-olds? Or people that act like five-year-olds? Or people who act like five-year-olds. Well, I do think this idea of, uh, of creating buffers to our impulses is important. And that also, by the way, worked for the, the it was another tactic that worked for the doctors prescribing antibiotics, which was to create a little pop-up in the electronic health record when they're about to prescribe the antibiotic that says, what's the, basically, what's your reason for, for prescribing this antibiotic to this patient? It's just a simple question. Like, and if you don't want to answer it, you have to check no justification given, and then that goes in the permanent record. So could you use that for a five-year-old? Uh, I think, you know, people do you. I mean, actually, I think in some ways people, parents, I, I'm not a parent, but I observe parents using some of these tactics maybe better than than the, the rest of us because they're <laughs> trying to get their kids, right, to think beyond their impulses. And then we sort of forget that we are, as adults, also very governed by, it, by our impulses uh, and that our technological tools reinforce that often. Uh, they don't have to. I think there are ways that we could use our technology um, to actually help us with long-term thinking. So How many good. times we look yeah. at our phones a day? Yeah, and, and yeah. then, yeah, and I, and I think the way, the engineer, right, the, the engineering around... Facebook likes and tweets, right? Like it's, it's made to reinforce the availability bias, which is basically, right? Like, or it, it does reinforce the availability bias. What we see is what we think is the most important. So we're constantly seeking that, um, that same reinforcement, that same sort of sense of satisfaction in the, more, in the moment. And we think that that's actually what's important when perhaps what's really important is not that, not what's getting retweeted, but, you know, the erosion of the federal court system. <laughs> Um, or democracy itself. Yes. Yeah. Um, and can you think of some beloved traditional objects from Bob Kopic um, that we should not preserve? Are there? Mm. How do we? How do we actually? You know, as you pointed out, we can't preserve everything, and we have mm -hmm. to make some decisions. Um, some are probably better for society than others. How do we? How do we make those decisions? Do you think? It's a great question. I think. I think looking at what we've, what has been valued over time is a good way 
to measure that. I think what's, measure, what's valuable in the moment, right? Like, my phone is extremely valuable to me in the moment. I need it constantly, especially as a journalist. But has it been important to me since I was a child? Was it, is it an object that was important to my parents? No, I mean, it's not an object I need to sacredly pass on to the future. And I think collectively, we could look at that as well. What are the, what are the resources that have had longevity? You know, humans have always cared about art, have always, you know, music is important to humans. Clean air to breathe is important to clean water, right? These are sort of, there are natural affinities between humans and some of these cultural resources. Um, sure, there are lots of pieces of art. Uh, do we need to protect all of them? Maybe not for five generations, but I think uh, each generation will figure out, distill of what it's inherited, what's still valuable to that generation, and that, I think, is what makes it an heirloom. I can't think of, yeah, I mean, I want to think, I want to have, like, something specific that I want to throw out. That's what I want to have the answer to that question. Does anyone else have one? <laughs> I'm, yeah, I, I don't, which one? Oh, oh. Confederate statues. That's oh. a, that's a pretty good all of, one. All of that's our amendments? Yeah, I think it's... Um, <laughs> well, I think... On the, I mean, on the same front, I think uh, Igor asks, you know, are there things that are, is there long forms of long-term thinking that are actually detrimental? And I think, you know, obviously, like if you live every day as though um, you're gonna, you have to save everything yeah. and, and never live for the moment, you're, yeah. you're, you're depriving yourself. And I think yeah. at the end of your life, you will have wished you lived in the moment more than if you hadn't. Of course. Um, but if you don't save for your retirement, if you don't work enough to pay for rent and food, you have, so there's some balance here. Yeah. Um, and are there examples where you've seen people go too far or um, how, how do we think we should find that balance? Well, I mean, I think there are examples of companies, for example, that just never make, right, like it's one thing to not have short-term results. It's another thing to be like, well, 20 years from now, <laughs> you know, and, and never have it, never have it yield results, never have an invention that comes out or, or um, a profit that gets turned. Um, but I mean, I, I think that this is a kind of like, I don't love the idea. I don't think that living in the moment is incompatible with being a long-term thinker. So I think you can live in the moment and enjoy the present moment, but it's also a way of understanding that you exist in time, right? That, and that this, this moment is transforming and that we're constantly, constantly in change. I think the difference, the, the sort of lousy place that I find we're in a lot in our culture right now is in constant anticipation of the immediate next moment, which I think is very different than being sort of mindful, present, enjoying, seizing the day. I think it's more like this anticipation of what you're about to get or what about, what's about to happen. And that, I think, is the place where we are anxious and where we are neither in present or future. Um, but yes, I mean, long-term thinking is not always going to be positive, right? There are examples, I think Shell, like some of the big oil companies, right, that have done really well at long-term thinking, have they always done that to the benefit of society? No, I mean, some of their long-term thinking has actually been maybe net detrimental to society. Um, so I don't talk about long-term thinking like it's an inherent good per se. I think we need a lot more of it because our culture is way out of whack today. Yeah, something we're struggling with a lot is what our you know, long-term thinking is not inherently good. There are people who use long-term thinking for 
horrible things. Um, and so right. um, how do you place values that are... Autocratic are, regimes, for example. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. the Assyrians were around right. for a long time. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. Um, and I, I think we, have a, we actually have a lot of questions here about both kind of the scale and the speed at which we need these kind of transformations in society. And, and I know that you can't be responsible for all of this, mm -hmm. uh, but um, that the scale and the speed, obviously, or, or the, uh, for things like climate change, um, feel mm -hmm. very pressing. Yeah. Um, and have you? What's your thought on on how to scale some of these ideas? And yeah. So, I think. Well, I think there's two kind of components to that question about climate change because I think some people say, well, don't we just need to? Don't we just need to act? dramatically and quickly on climate change, like isn't long-term thinking, or like is it any more long-term thinking? There's just so much danger around us. Australia is burning. Uh, for example, the Arctic is melting. And I think that that is true that we need dramatic immediate response in terms of cutting our emissions, but this is also a multi-generational problem so that we're not gonna, a singular response to do anything right now is not going to solve the problem. And I actually worry, like, there are some short-term responses to climate change, including geoengineering, which we may need as one of the tools in the arsenal of, of tools to address this crisis, but that if done rashly and quickly without thinking about the consequences, without understanding what those consequences could be, uh, could be really dangerous, could actually be counterproductive um, over the long run. So. I, I think that we do need long-term thinking as an approach because we're gonna have to deal with this problem over time. There's not a quick fix to climate change. And then I think there's this, this challenge of the scaling up, which is what you're saying basically that the climate crisis is happening now. Can we teach everyone to be long-term thinkers in time to address what we need to address? And, and the answer is somewhat similar because I think Long-term thinking is not the only way to get action on climate change. I think there is this immediate harm that people are experiencing that's going to is bringing a lot of people into the fight or into the conversation about climate change. Is making them make it a priority when they vote, but that they still need to be able to imagine. So we saw if anyone who watched the presidential primary debate, Democratic debate last night, would have seen that climate change even though the candidates brought it up, the moderators really didn't want to talk about it and didn't want to stay on it. And it's, it's a hard thing to sort of keep in the news cycle, right? It's, a, it's, it's um, because it is still a problem of the future for too many people. And I think that means that we need to be able to bring it into our imaginations more when we go to the voting booth. If you put your near-term stock portfolio, which is doing really well in this economy under Trump, before the future of your children and grandchildren, that's a failure of imagination. It means you're not able to think long-term enough. Uh, the immediate outcome is how you vote, and how you vote is going to affect our immediate response to climate change in this country. So I think it's connected. Um, I don't think that we can give up on making people better long-term thinkers and helping them be able to, um, to bring their imagination of the future more into the present. And that's an interesting one. I think. Can you say more about the um, the reception of this book? Are you getting invited by um, conservative groups as well as uh, the Long Now? I know. I mean, the book has yeah. been tremendously successful, but I, I would I would love yeah. to hear that you're getting invited by all kinds of groups of different backgrounds. Yes, I, I've talked to some private sector groups and investors. It's funny. One of the investment firms that I profiled um, in the book. Uh, 
Eagle Capital in New York, there's a sort of, there's a father and son who, it's family-owned investment firm that through a long-term approach has done wildly well, a $25 billion investment firm that had to really withstand the noise and really resisted the, the sort of allure of the first dot-com bubble and sort of the high prices that some of those companies that were, that were a little more than froth were trading at. And the father of the, fir- the sort of like elder um, brother of the firm, his name is Ravenel Curry, um, is like doesn't really is n- not into doesn't really buy climate change as a big problem, um, and then the younger one is is sort of more um, more on the same page as I am, and um, and yet like he the elder guys like using this book right all in part because they're profiled in the book but using it with all sorts of companies and invest and investment leaders and um, and I have been invited to different kinds of venues to talk about the book I think. It was a decision, right, like to, I do in the very, in the preface, I start by writing about climate change because it was a driver for me to write the book. And there was a question of whether that was a good thing to do strategically for selling a book (laughs) that was raised by, by I think my literary agent first raised it. And, um, you know, I think it's the big long-term thinking question of our time. It's one of the biggest challenges we face. And I feel you can't talk about being a good ancestor without thinking about climate change. So um, if there are people who don't invite me to talk because the book mentions climate change, um, that's unfortunate, but I just feel it's so much more important that we, that we center it in our conversations and in our, in our thinking. For sure. Uh, and I mean, you, you mentioned how we tell ourselves stories, and I, I, I'm always kind of curious about how we think about um, collective fiction, things like science fiction that, you know, in the 50s and 60s was very utopic, and somewhere around the 70s in Blade Runner, it became very dystopic and apocalyptic. Um, and I wonder if these are, um, in a way, kind of a human immune response to telling ourselves stories that we don't want to have happen. Um, but what's your take on science fiction? Is it useful? Is it a, is it a good space for us to play um, and learn? Yeah, I mean, I think it is useful. I, I think the dystopia, the problem with dystopia, <laughs> it's useful. it is useful for uh, enhancing our imaginations, our ability to think ahead. But the challenge with dystopic views of the future, especially when they become really popularized and really part of our uh, of our conversation, and this is happening, I think, with climate change to a, a degree, is that doomsday predictions have very particular effects on human psychology. So you can raise the alarm. If people get really scared, it's good for sort of an immediate reaction, again, to like have a sort of um, a hammer to hit at something uh, when you're afraid. Uh, but it's not so good for sustained response and for sustained concern. And so uh, the challenge... I think with some of the dystopic visions, particularly around climate change, that are becoming part of the mainstream is that people feel weak. They feel like there's nothing they can do in light of these predictions of rising seas, of refugee crises. And uh, when that happens, you might just decide to live like there's no tomorrow, to use that phrase, um, because you feel powerless in face of that. And I think it's really important uh, not to be Pollyanna and just believe that the utopia is inevitable or that the dystopia is inevitable, but to really see the decision points we have, to see the agency we have as individuals and collectively to shape the future for better or worse, because that's the reality we face. We are not, you know, we are not powerless in face of many of these crises. We have actual ways in which we can either steer 
steer the direction of our response, steer the direction of, um, of our societies and our civilizations. And, and it, I think dystopia is sort of like disaster porn. Like it becomes a way of sort of um, relegating our responsibility because it's sort of, it's like, okay, the end is nigh. I'm just gonna, you know, have another scotch. Which you should do, but not because <laughs> the end is nigh, but because you need to rest up for the next day's fight. Um, we're, we're, we're wrapping up here, um, but I, I, I did want to ask, uh, you know, after um, some, you've had some of the more amazing fellowships in the United States, and um, it helped you write these, this book, yeah. um, which was great, uh, the New America uh, Fellowship, and, the, um, and now you are an editor, uh, a features editor at the Boston Globe, yes? Editorial page editor. Editorial yes. page editor, sorry. Oh, yeah, the opinions, um, the opinions, not the features, not, yeah. But uh, this has put you into a, a, uh, a kind of a news cycle that um, is obviously very difficult place to really think about the long term, and I'm, I'm curious yeah. as to how that transition is, and, and then also, you know, are you going to write um, the next book uh, that's the, that had your original title? <laughs> like, there's no like there's no tomorrow. I really believe there's a tomorrow. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I, um, it's challenging being in a deadline-driven environment because, and this is, uh, I write about this uh, in the book in other contexts of, of businesses, for example, um, where if you're constantly up against uh, deadlines, it becomes really, it's, or firefighting, as, as some experts call it, right, it becomes very difficult to then work on prevention of the fires or just like what you want the new landscape to look like. And uh, the news industry is not only like, you know, I was a, last a journalist 10 years ago, so I sort of left journalism in a different era and then came back to it uh, just a couple months ago. And now it's even more compressed with the 24-7 news cycle. Um, I started the first day as the public impeachment trial. Uh, so there hasn't been a dull moment uh, since I arrived back in the newsroom. And it does become really hard to plan for, like, what is the future of opinion journalism? Like, we're, the business model of journalism has been totally shaken up. Uh, everyone has an opinion. Everyone can tweet their opinion and share it online. So what's the value of a newspaper? Well, part of it is that we have trained people who are fact-checking. We, you know, there's this credibility factor where we're really kind of building something that has more rigor in terms of opinion. And then we also can curate, like we can have, right? Like we can bring in voices and, and try to figure out which voices we want to amplify in this time. And so, yeah, I, what I'm trying to do now is really think, of, think about how to do that while also doing all this daily stuff. And it's a big challenge. Um, and so part of the job is just like figuring out how to free up some of my bandwidth to do that and to, to be thinking ahead more like stuff like you know, how, which people you put on which kind of stories and how you um, preserve some thinking time. You know, I have like a day a week where, like a Saturday morning where I feel like it's really important to get out into nature, go out to Walden Pond and walk around Walden Pond and just scan, literally scan the horizon, but also figuratively scan it for um, what's beyond the immediate. Well, that's a great plug. Our next talk at the interval is with uh, Tiffany Schlein, whose book 24-6 is about taking 24 hours off every week off of uh, technology ah. and screens, which I would also recommend. So it'll be, yeah. the, it's the next step in the personal long-term thinking thing, yeah. but uh, um, it's, it's a good one. And, and that uh, also really helps with writing a book. Uh, totally, to, right. to get off the device, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I always find when the internet stops in our office, like it's amazing how many things people have to do all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all this filing. Yeah. Right. Um, there was a there was an idea. We'll just close with this: is um, that I was really struck, and I was kind of amazed that I had never uh, I had never heard of uh, Edith Brown Weiss and her principle of, around intergenerational equity, and it was like mm -hmm. this kind of light of hope in my head and something that I had to dive into and research some more. So I wonder if you could just explain that principle. Sure, yeah. So Edith Brown Weiss is a Georgetown law scholar and uh, she did, she coined this term and this concept of intergenerational equity, which she says is actually built into a lot of founding documents. So this idea that the next generation matters and we should do something for future generations, and I kind of went deeper into this as well, is... You know, Edmund Burke, who was the godfather of conservatism, the Irish political philosopher, wrote about society as a partnership among generations. Uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote to James Madison, talking about how resources should be unencumbered for future generations by their predecessors. Um, Teddy Roosevelt wrote about this concept. So, and it's also in the public trust doctrine, which exists in a number of constitutions across different continents, uh, different countries. Uh, and it's this idea that, uh, that the next generation matters, and, and Weiss's, Edith Brown Weiss's concept of it is that it can really be built into law, that actually there are cases where decisions are being made, like the Indian Supreme Court has made a couple decisions where essentially they've said this coal company can't do build this plant because of intergenerational equity issues, basically because this is, would be harmful to the next generation. And there are some lawsuits that are working their way through the federal courts in this country um, in other countries as well to try to establish this idea that you can actually, future generations can actually be represented um, in our legal system and that they have rights. And the way that that's been playing out mostly is to have young people as part of the plaintiffs, the group of plaintiffs for these lawsuits, but they're also, in a way, in a sense, they're representing unborn generations, right? They're representing themselves, but a lot of these harms, particularly with climate change, play out over the course of many generations. And so the, the young people alive today are almost like stand-ins for future young people, uh, which is really kind of cool. And there are ways that uh, parliaments in Israel and Finland have even created ombudspeople for future generations. So there's ways in which institutions can actually reflect this idea of intergenerational equity uh, within them. And, um, you know, we're not in the most um, bright spot in our politics to institute something like this right now, but I think these ideas really matter. And, uh, as we think about what, what is the government, what is the society that we want in the future? What do we want it to look like? How do we want to rebuild this democracy in particular? Uh, I think these ideas really are going to matter. Well, here's to the next generation having legal rights. Thank yeah. you very much. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a member of the Long Now Foundation. For less than the price of a book or movie, monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Thank you for listening.